This is Strange Assembly episode 181, Side. Welcome to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. I'm Chris Stevenson, and here with me today is Jamie Stegmeier. Hey, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on here. You are in name at least half of Stonemeyer Games, although I, I think more than half as far as the day-to-day operations of the company. Yeah, I am 89% of Stonemeyer Games. <laughs> Stonemeyer Games did uh, Viticulture, which was our, I guess, preliminary game of the year for 2013. I think you ended up falling into second behind Star Realms when we look back a year later. But that's <laughs> nothing to be ashamed of. No, no. <laughs> yeah, U- Euphoria, I did not like as well. Jay ended up liking it more as he played it more. But I know I was able to sell my Kickstarter copy for about four times what I paid for it. So clearly a lot of people liked that one, too. <laughs> I think people like hard to find things. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll, I'll take what I can get. But yeah. You are about to have your, I, I believe, fourth Kickstarter game, Scythe, go up in a, what, maybe a week at this point? Yeah, so we're recording this on, on the Thursday while, while Essen is happening, and Scythe will launch on October 13th, which is next Tuesday. So, I, I, are you a little sad that Between Two Cities is is at Essen and you aren't? Well, that's a good question. It's bittersweet. I, I'm really enthused to see it there. It's actually not even quite there. I've had to arrange for an air freight to get it there, and it should arrive tomorrow. So, I'm very happy to have it there. And I'm actually, I'm, I'm more of an introvert, so these big, giant conventions, while it's awesome to meet people, it's also exhausting. So, I'm Kind of, it's kind of nice to just send the designers of the game there to let them be the ambassadors for the game this time. Now, the Scythe, the one that's about to come out, I, I've had the chance to play this once. It was pretty cool. It has a sort of funky, I guess not dystopian future, dystopian alternate past uh, in Eastern Europe after World War One thing to it. How did that theme come about well yeah it it came about this is i never really thought that this would happen with a game but basically i saw the the artist work on a site called kotaku where they kind of featured this was a little over a year ago they featured his art because he had started to build this this alternate history 1920s world where mechs share the land with with farmers and people in eastern europe and so I discovered the art now, and immediately it just like really grabbed hold of my imagination. And I was like, I, I want to make a game in this world. So I contacted the artist and we worked something out. And from then on, we collaborated on, on building the world together. Since I certainly have not memorized the names of these, the different factions and, and characters that you can play in this game, could you describe what they what they are for the for listeners sure and i can i can talk about it a little bit in the context of how the game came to be because originally um the game jacob the the artist uh he's polish and he's very passionate about uh, you know polish tradition polish history and there was a little war that happened like you said after world war one 
that I don't think we really learn about in the U.S., but it was a little war between Poland and Russia. So after World War I kind of weakened uh, Europe, Russia tried to move in, and Poland kind of stood up against the, the Russians as they, as they tried to encroach upon, upon Europe. And they, actually, I don't exactly know who won, but I know that the Russians didn't make it. Like the Russia, the Polish did stop them. I'm not sure if there was a clear winner there, but the Polish stopped them. And no one knows about this little patch of history. And so Jacob wanted to take that little war and bring it into the hearts and minds of, of the world through his art. And so early on in the game, when we were working together, it was just those two factions. And I told Jacob that I didn't, I didn't really want it to be a team game or a two-player game. And so I asked him if he would be interested in bringing in some other factions as well, while still capturing that same moment in history that was so important to him. And so he had other ideas. He has a bunch of ideas for different worlds that exist in, in different times and places. And amongst those worlds were other factions that he brought in. There's a, a Nordic faction kind of based on Scandinavian countries that he brought in. There's a Saxon faction based roughly on, on uh, German uh, Germany. And there's a Crimean faction that's based upon Crimean history and traditions. So he kind of brought those five factions together into this, this fictional patch of land in Eastern Europe. So now you mentioned the, the mechs in there. The, one of the cool things about this is, all right, each of these factions has its own uh, mech models, right? So Scythe has 25 different miniatures in it, and five of them are characters. So each faction, you're, each player is kind of represented on the board by by a character who is sent by the leader of their faction to explore the land and expand their territory onto this land. And along with it, they have the capability of deploying four mechs. And so each faction has four identical mechs. So like the Russian faction has four identical mechs, and then the Nordic faction has four identical but different mechs. So it's a total of five different mech models. Um, that you can deploy. And whenever you deploy a mech on the board, as you might recall from your playtest, the, uh, all of your mechs and your character gain a new ability based on, on which, uh, which mech you chose to deploy. Yeah. And just for the, 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 the benefit of the people that actually know what I've played, uh, one of the guys in one of my play groups is doing the playtest for the Automa single player version of the game and so he has created a a print and play version of it and so that's what I I have played with that but I have I've not played with any of the the real components or or anything like that our mechs looked suspiciously like little risk guys <laughs> on horses so it's uh <laughs> so let me ask you just a a few things about the the gameplay. I know you've said that two of the inspirations for the gameplay are are Kemet and Terra Mystica, That's and I, I think that Kemet is coming out in that there is a vic- there can be a victory point benefit for attacking, but it's not really inherently about destroying people. And then in it, it's Terra Mystica, and like as the game goes on, you manipulate your board to get extra benefits for yourself uh am i 
taking that correctly and that's how your inspirations factor in or is it deeper than that? No, you've, uh, yeah, I mean, that's part of it. So with Kemet, um, what you said is definitely true. We're attacking, well, I guess the one difference with Kemet, attacking is pretty much like how you win Kemet. It's, you know, you're attacking a lot, you're trying to hold territories, and that's how you, how you win the game. Inside, battles, combat is a part of it, and you can, you can get, a, you can get a star, which is one of the ways that you get points and can trigger the end of the game. Um, you can get a star from winning a combat, whether or not you're an attacker or defender. But the, I, I would say the main two things, even above and beyond that, to compare it to Scythe, and that, and that uh, Kemet inspired Scythe, is, uh, the deterministic combat in Kemet. Which is, you know, where you're, you're selecting cards from, in Kemet, you're selecting cards from your hand. You have complete control, basically, over the, over your input into combat. And the opponent has the same, but it has the interesting element of uncertainty where you don't know exactly what your opponent is going to put into combat. And side does that same thing where you, you have, there's no dice rolling, no randomness. You have complete control over your combat input. And the other comparison to Kemet are the, in Kemet, it's pretty easy to jump around the board. So even if someone might look far away from you, they're actually pretty much just as close to you as any other spot on the board. And we do the same thing inside using tunnels. Uh, so you can quickly go through a tunnel and pop up on the other side of the board. And that's why we're able to use the same board for all player counts. Because even in a, a two-player game where you end up with factions on different home territories on different sides of the board, you're still pretty pretty close to that player at all times if you go through that tunnel. And yet yeah, the Terra Mystica comparison, uh, Terra Mystica was a huge influence on the game, uh, both because of the reason you gave, where you, you have where like your economy is based on a player mat where you're taking things off that player mat as you build them inside that it's as, as you're building, recruiting, upgrading, deploying. It's like every action you take pretty much removes something from your player mat and improves your economy. So that was a core element of it. The other part of it for Terra Mystica is in Terra Mystica, it's, it's a really rewarding game. Like it's not a very punishing game. Like everything you do feels good. It's 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 a reward. It's giving you more stuff. And inside, I kind of took that even farther to the extreme, where for uh, four of the core actions you're taking, you gain two things every time you do them. For example, whenever you do an upgrade, you might remember this from the game that you played. If you uh, if you do an upgrade, you you pick up a cube from one part of your player mat and you move it to another part of your player mat. And what that does is it makes the benefit of one action stronger and it makes the cost of another action cost less. So with that one action, you're getting two rewards. You're, you're improving those two things. So I really like games that do that, that kind of reward players. Does that make sense? Have you, do you, what about you, Chris? Do you prefer games that are kind of punishing and you have to figure out the puzzle to be punished less or do you like rewarding games? Uh, I, it, it, it depends on the game. I'm usually okay with the punishing thing or the, the feed your people uh-huh. as it commonly is. Although, but I, I have to say, if I was sitting down and designing a game, I would almost certainly not include that or would lean, or maybe not, that's probably too strong, or would lean towards not including that because there's really no upside to that. There are, there aren't very many people who I, I think are like, oh yeah, I really want a punishing game, 
but there are definitely people who really don't want that. And and yeah, you're you're right. Now that you, I hadn't thought about it, but now that you mentioned it, there is a lot of of doubling up on that. The uh, is it the enlist action? You you free up an extra benefit on your board, and you get a one shot benefit every time you place a mech out. You are unlocking a spot on your board that increases your you know movement abilities or or something like that for your your character and your mech. Right. So. Right. Yeah. yeah. Let me ask you about something that I, I know I, I've seen you I've seen you mention that ties into something that happened when when we played. So inside you have this faction, like you mentioned, and that faction has uh, a built-in ability, and then it has four other abilities that can be unlocked by the mech, and then it uh, you have a second player board that where everyone has the same actions, but they're not the actions are in pairs, and they're not necessarily not. They are not in the same pairs between the different boards. Mm-hmm. Plus, then you can get these factories for you know extra an extra add-on to that board. And when we played, there were a couple of things that I remembered us, us playing through and going, "Man, that seems way good." There's a, a faction that, unlike every other faction, could theoretically just win by fighting. And there was a faction who could take. Uh, the same action over and over and over again, whereas a normal faction is required to move around to different spaces on the board between its turns, and he got the first factory, and so he basically just got to drop it and not have to pay resources to play out uh, buildings and mechs. Mm-hmm. And so we're, oh, oh, man, this is this is not good, really. It's going to where... Then we get to the end of the game, and... I got second, despite having never built a single mech and therefore not moved beyond my starting territory except with my workers. And the the guy who won was, of course, the guy who had been playtesting the Automa expansion who realized how how important it was to spread out your workers to take more territory before the game ended. Right. Uh, so with us playing it as our first playthrough, it felt us it left us thinking about things about faction balance that ended up not really being borne out by the final score. But I, I also saw that you had talked about the vast quantity of, of blind playtesting that you guys had done to make sure that these factions and these combinations uh, worked out well. So uh, I was just wondering if you wanted to talk about how you guys uh, approach that in, in this game. Yeah, so there are a couple things going on there from what you said, which is really interesting. Uh, one part of it are the faction abilities that you described. So every faction has, they have a couple of unique abilities on their mechs, like you said, but they also have a core faction ability that's kind of useful throughout the game. And you're right, it totally has that response when players see them, where they see theirs and they think it's cool, but then they look across the, the, the table and they're like, oh wow, that's even cooler, or that's, that's gotta be broken when they're looking at that other, that other ability. <laughs> and that I think is actually, well, I'm curious to see how people respond to it. I think in general, that's a good thing. Like, you, it kind of the thing that makes you want to play the game again because you want to try out the new factions. But the key, as you said, is that they, even though if it, if it feels a little broken, that each one actually is balanced. Um, and that each one maybe feels broken each one as you're playing it. It feels, so you feel get to feel good about the faction that you have. And so a big part of side that was really really important to me was that we just did a massive amount of blind play testing so that we'd have the data to confirm that the factions were as balanced as we thought they were 
And so we went through three different waves of multiplayer blind play testing um, that I coordinated. It was kind of two months of nonstop coordination and prototyping and, and talking on forums and going through data. And by the third wave of that, we had, we had tweaked all the faction mats so that they were balanced. And we had tweaked all the, um, all the player mats, which are, like you said, randomly paired with the faction mats. We tweaked them that they are balanced. And we had tweaked them to make sure that no faction mat, when paired with a specific player mat, was imbalanced more than any other combination. So I'm sure as people play the game when it comes out next summer, I'm sure that they, there will be times where people have a reaction where they're like, oh, okay, that guy really ran off with a certain combination or a certain faction map or player map. But I'm pretty confident based on the blind playtesting we did that anything that happens like that where it feels like someone runs away with a game is simply because they figured it out better and quicker than anybody else did. And hopefully people will, will understand that. That's kind of a tough thing that I, you know, as a designer, I, I hope that people get, but uh, you never really know. And on top of that, I think your uh, your exposure to the game has come from playtesting Automa, which is our uh, our solo variant for the game that will be on our day one stretch goal. So it's not inherently in the game, but I'm I'm guessing that we will reach that stretch goal pretty quickly, hopefully. And that we've done another over 250 playtests just of of Altama. So right now we have over 1,000 blind playtests of Scythe. So I'm, I'm elated that these playtesters were willing to give their time to help the game be as balanced as and, and fun as I believe it to be. So I, I have not personally played Atama. It's another guy in my group, so he, he right. does that. I I um, am not so dedicated to... Too much. My, I guess my my bit is doing podcasts, and, uh-huh. and other people's bit is taking the time to create print and play versions of games and play test them. <laughs> uh, so, as you mentioned, yeah, Atama is. I'm going to say technically a stretch goal. I honestly, I think that everyone would be maybe not you, but pretty much everyone else in the gaming world would be kind of shocked if you. Uh, did not um, hit your initial stretch goals, whatever <laughs> it is that you're setting them at. I, I think that Scythe right now, for whatever it's worth, is like f- number four on the BGG hotness, and Between Two Cities is, is eight, I think. So oh, cool. you've got two in the top ten. I didn't realize that was so high. That's awesome. <laughs> I did notice that on the the map, there are dedicated spots for two factions that are are not in the base game. Is that expansion something that's going to be a Kickstarter stretch goal, or is that just you know if it if it sells well enough, or we think it's probably going to sell well enough that there will be a later retail release? Will that be its own Kickstarter like Tuscany? Well, yeah, that's a good question. Um, for sure, it is not a stretch goal, and I'll try to be very clear with it, about that during the project. There's no secret surprise there. We haven't designed those factions. We haven't playtested them, so we're certainly not going to include them with the base game. But yeah, the, the plan is, uh, you know, I have ideas for these factions and ideas came up in playtesting, so I'm going to work on designing them over the next few months and hopefully release them just probably direct to retail. Maybe I'll do a pre-order or something, but probably not a Kickstarter, probably just a, a retail release in time for the holiday season in uh, in 2016. So yeah, they, ideally, if, if everything goes 
as planned, Scythe will be released to backers next summer, like probably next August, and then we'll release it to retailers in September, and then maybe we'd have the expansion come out in November or December. Now, as one might be able to tell from your ability to give relatively precise dates, and yes, I understand that everything is an estimate and is subject to the vagaries of the universe, so let me make it clear, I no one should take those as uh, you know the word of God, but uh, Stonemaier Games does have an extremely good reputation as far as Kickstarter things go. So I I figured that now would be a good time if you wanted to pimp your book or anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, I just I had a uh, my book about crowdfunding. Crowdfunding is called a crowdfunder strategy guide. It came out a few weeks ago. And yeah, I, I basically wrote the book prompted by my agent and a, and a book publishing company uh, because my Kickstarter blog is, uh, you know, I, I write it because I want to help other creators and I want to make crowdfunding a better place. And I want people to learn from my mistakes to make that a better place. But I think the blog mostly reaches just the tabletop game category, even though it's for any category. That's mainly the, the most, most of the readers are tabletop game creators. While, while the book, I think, can have a much broader reach to people around the country and around the world who, you know, maybe just want to create something, whatever, in whatever category it may be. And so I do have, uh, this book out there now called the Crowdfunder Strategy Guide. As far as, uh, Scythe goes, uh, is there, let's see, so you, that has, as far as far as I could read, it's going to have three basic tier levels for your your gamer, and it was fancy game, fancy game with metal coins, and then fancy game with metal coins and super fancy resources. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's a, that's a good way of saying it. Oh no, and I think there was one with an art book in there too. I, yeah. There is an art book level, yeah, too. I like that you call it every level fancy game because that's kind of how I feel about it too. It's... <laughs> Every game is going to have all the all the miniatures. It's going to have all the custom wooden bits and all the the beautiful art and all that. But yeah, then there's metal coins. The collector's edition has the metal coins, has realistic resources, and it has the thing that I'm probably the most excited about, just because I don't think I've seen it in another game, is the extended board, which is basically like when you flip over the standard board, on the back side will be the exact same board, but zoomed in 50%. And then you'll slide up against it another, a whole other section that completes that 50% zoom art to make this gigantic board for people who have really nice big gaming tables. Because inside, as, as you might recall, all of the, everything that, like everything is kept on the map. Like all of your, your, your character, your mech, your workers, and the resources they're producing are actually on the map itself. So the bigger those hexes are on the map, the better they can, you can kind of see the art and the story that Jacob tried to create and the art on the board without the resources getting in the way of it. They fit fine on the regular board, but on the big board, I think it's going to just look really cool on the table. No, no, it, it, it I mean, it, honestly, just the, the print and play board looks pretty cool. And I think it's fair to, to call even your, your base games fancy. It's one of the, the strange things. So I, I did not do the original Kickstarter for Viticulture, but when, uh, you did the the Tuscany. Mm-hmm. I did the Kickstarter for the collector's edition with the base game and the and the expansion and the metal coins. And 
I, because my wife wanted to use them, we finally did get out the metal coins. But I actually just did not use the metal coins for a while because the standard cardboard coins in Viticulture were so good. They've got you've got the nice big spread of sizes between different denominations, mm-hmm. completely different colors. It's just very very f- functional. Just the and and the night and high quality the the base components without without going to the the metal and uh, resin. I think right the the realistic resources. I mean, is, is, are those resin or are those something else? Uh, three of them are resin. One is metal. But yeah, thank you okay. for saying that. I, I we I guess we take a lot of pride in making the components feel really good, even if they're not the the premium version of them. So I'm glad to hear that about the coins. Although now that you've used the metal coins, will you ever go back to the cardboard ones? Uh, I, I don't think I'm allowed to. I think pretty much everybody else wants to use the right. the, the fancy coins more. Uh-huh. Yeah, I, I'm. Yeah, I, it's kind of interesting for me when I I look at at something like these things. It's like, oh, well, when I'm kickstarting something, oh, I really do like to get the fancy version with all the Kickstarter stuff, but they're dooming themselves. I mean, I know that just the base game components are going to be such high quality. Do I really need to spend <laughs> the extra to get the fancy components? I don't know. I, I mean, I know there are some people who are just like, metal coins, metal coins. Right, right. Well, I mean, I'd much rather get them with a game. I know that, I mean, right, I, there, there have been several Kickstarters that a variety of companies have done for just, here are some metal coins, and those have done, and some of those have done very well, but I, I, because your your coins there were right the coins for viticulture are specifically designed in a viticulture theme and I believe that that is true of the scythe coins as well. That's right. Yeah, there are there are eighty total coins inside five denominations, and each dom- denomination is based on one of the five factions. So yeah, I'm I'm actually I have them right here next to the microphone. You might be able to hear me clinking them, but they I have the samples and they look really good. Uh, yeah, and you, and you mentioned the the art. Two, one of the things that I, I liked was the encounter cards, which there are certain spots on the board that when your character gets there, they have an encounter, and it's it's sort of you, you just kind of have three options: you have a nice version and a neutral version and a mean version, mm-hmm. and one gets you popularity right because you're trying to you want to rule this land, and you it's much easier to do that if the people love you. So it, it matters how 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 many mean or nice things you've done during the game, but. Each one of them tells a little story, but instead of having the the story set up with a writing, it has this picture. And then the three options do have a little write-up. You'll see a picture of, say, a guy with his bear, or, or a bear has wandered into the village. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it'll say, right, like, oh, you can shoot the bear, and now you get food resources, or you can train the bear to fight for you, or, <laughs> it, I, you know, you can do something else. Right. But the I found that the art just did an, a fantastic job of setting up, or maybe I should dual credit both the art for looking fantastic, and then whoever it was who wrote the little story options. I don't know if that was you or Jacob or someone else, but those, I thought, fit together really well and in a way that made them a lot cooler than if it was just flip up a card, pick one of these three mechanical options. Well, I'm, I'm so glad to hear you say that in particular, because I know you talk on your podcast a lot about about story and narrative and you know the role-playing RPG side of it. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly what we were trying to capture. Jacob, Jacob made the art. I wrote those descriptions and the little story part. 
but we intentionally did not like put a title at the top to say what you were looking at or put flavor text on there because the art, I think, does that better than any set of words could possibly do. And I think it depends on people. I think people will play it in different ways. Some people will look at those cards and they'll, they'll just read the, the mechanical text and nothing else. And if they want to do that, that's cool. But for groups that maybe just want to, like, I think the game actually makes it pretty easy to do this. Basically, when you draw those cards, you're supposed to show the art to everybody real quick. And then you read just the, uh, the thematic text out loud. And I've just through playtesting it with, even though I wrote it and I played it with people who knew me, there were some really nice thematic moments there where we kind of joked around about what I would really do if, if I was in that situation, you know? And in the end, I make the mechanical choice, but we've had that, that moment where we kind of forgot we were in a game for a minute. And I, I love those moments. And the art, I think, just does that. They're like full scenes of things that are happening. It's not always one specific thing. And so you kind of, you almost see what you want to see, or you can see the big picture. Um, it's kind of up to you what, what you look at and what you see in those scenes. Yeah, there, there seems like a reasonable amount of here. I guess as far as scenes go, that it would combine the different elements of the setting. You'd have maybe a village or a house and some people there. Maybe there's a a reindeer or an elk. Or I don't, I don't, I don't remember what they were, they were supposed to be. But then there's also this, you know, giant mech right. looming over right. them. <laughs> do you do you steal their reindeer or do you? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad to hear that. There was a big debate on Board Game Geek a couple of days ago about people. A few a few people were very vocal about saying that we should put flavor text on there, even though it wasn't really up for debate at that point, but I was kind of just hearing them out and hearing what they had to say about it. But uh, I, I think it's almost coming from a place where so many other games have done that in lieu of art or to kind of make up for very basic art, which is totally fine. Like, it depends on the game. I'm very fortunate to have an artist who can do unlimited art on this game, and not every game has that um, that luxury. But I hope people kind of step outside maybe what they're used to in a game and are willing to give it a chance. Because I think it's pretty cool if you give it a chance. I could see maybe wanting a title or something if that makes it easier to kind of read it to the group without having without having to show people the art. But I don't know really where it would go on the card without getting in the way of the art. And you right. kind of want people to show the art around. So Yeah, and that was actually a good takeaway. That was my takeaway from the conversation, too. Not that I actually put titles on there, but I made the first option that you read out loud, I made it a lot clearer as to what, kind of what's going on. Not everything, but a little bit of what's going on. So, like, instead of saying, take the farmer's mech, I'll say, yeah, I'll be a little bit more descriptive than that, so you know that the farmer has, like, an old mech that he no longer needs, and and now you can take it if you want. Yeah, this this farmer was a soldier in the Great War. You can... You can repair his Mac for him. Right, exactly. uh, yeah, no, and that's that. That's really good. I I think little things like that, little tells in storytelling, are can be very important. Just to slip things in like that to to bring the reader in when they're especially in a format like this, where right, it's not a novel. Right. You don't get to start the chapter with the assumption that your reader has, in fact, read all of the words that came before this. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Just another gameplay aspect that I I thought was interesting to, and I guess this pulls back in with the possible alternate factions, but 
one of the things that I I felt playing it is that there is there's I mean, this almost has to be the case. I don't know how you have been. Del- it's very deliberate that right at the start of the game you're confined in your little island or peninsula, I guess it is. Everybody's got rivers around them that at the start of the game you don't have the ability to get past. Mm -hmm. And then you get things like the tunnels or the river walk ability on your mech that lets you get out beyond that. But we noticed that there are, are some factions that get a bit more out of their river walk than others do because the river walk is is limited by certain terrain types and the faction at least if we were playing correctly the faction always starts on the same chunk of land on the board mm-hmm. and so it's always it's deterministic which part of your island you're going to be able to river walk or of your peninsula you're going to be able to river walk out of but it, it seemed a bit different for the factions although maybe we we missed that but then the the spots for the expansion factions on the board are not constrained like that. So I guess the, the question out of that long prelude is uh, what gameplay considerations and, and what was your process on designing exactly what sort of accessibility the existing factions have moving out onto the board? And then what are your thoughts and how that is going to work with these new factions that are not limited in that way? Yeah, that's a great question about Riverwalk, because Riverwalk is one of the key ways that you can, like you said, get out of your initial starting home territory. Initially, every faction had Riverwalk, as they do now, but it was just Riverwalk. So it said, once you unlock this ability, you can move across any river. And what we found is that aggressive players would unlock that ability, move out of their home territory, and would immediately move into the nearest opponent territory. and. Uh, really kind of get in the way of anything that player was trying to do really early in the game. It was something that we kind of hoped would happen in the final third of the game. That's where we want most of the interaction to take place. But players were doing it in the first third when their opponents were still having fun building their infrastructure, and it made it really frustrating and not fun for those players. And so what we did is that um, we used the advantage of having a set board rather than a modular board and we said, okay, we'll do, we'll give each faction river walk, but you can only river walk onto two different terrain types that will decide. And so every faction has two different kind of target territory types, terrain types that they can river walk onto. And those are based off of your location on the board so that you can't, even if you're an aggressive player, you can't just move directly into someone else's home territory. So that may have been kind of what you noticed as you were noticing that it's a little different for from each faction. As for the expansion factions, as you pointed out, they are not landlocked like the um, starting factions. And that uh, that will present a small design challenge as I decide what to do with those factions. But it's also, I've kind of had it in my mind what I want to do there. And basically, I want to make those factions a little slower because they'll have immediate access to the rest of the board. So I'm going to make them a little slower than the other factions um, and give them some limitations there that they have to break out of that go beyond the idea of rivers. And at the same time, I think the more interesting thing that I haven't thought much about is how will I give those factions exposure to other faction home territories? Because in the final third of the game, it's important that there is a little bit of pressure on your home area so I'll actually probably just do the same method. I'll probably give them Riverwalk, 
but make sure that they can't riverwalk directly into one of the factions that are right nearby where they are. Yeah, that, that seemed to work out reasonably well as far as going after the enemy went. It, it, that, except maybe yeah, fairly late in the game, it seemed like if you had the ability to go into someone else's home territory, you could do that, mm-hmm. and it would really mess them up, but it probably was not a particularly effective tactic for advancing yourself. You'd get those... You could get the stars for winning the combat, but it wasn't a particularly efficient way of doing that, and you could just just get yourself destroyed on popularity loss for chasing off workers and mm-hmm. yeah that's a, a kind of a one of the other dissuading factors in the game is that if you aggressively move onto a territory that's occupied by an opponent's workers and you either workers don't actually fight and so if they just have workers there you're just going to chase them right off their land or if you win a battle there and they have some workers there you're going to again chase those workers off the land after the battle and you lose popularity for doing so because they don't they don't think as highly of you for for forcing them off their, their land. And at the end of the game, when you score points, your popularity determines, I guess, your kind of your multiplier there at the end of the game. So if you have really low popularity, you're not going to score a lot. You're not going to get a lot of coins at the end of the game. And so that's another discouraging factor to discourage players from really going into other players' homelands where they have a lot of workers. Okay. That is all of the questions that I had for now, but is there anything else that you wanted to talk about about Scythe or Between Two Cities, or is there there's like the Viticulture Essential Edition or something like that coming out? I have no use for that, but if you got a <laughs> Viticulture, it sounded pretty awesome. Yeah, so Viticulture Essential Edition, which I hope will actually be the final edition of, of Viticulture. I never really had any intention of just going from edition to edition, which is really awkward as a game company to do. But after the second edition came out, I was approached by Uwe Rosenberg, who designed Agricola and Caverna and Bonanza. He's kind of a, a board game design idol of mine, so I never imagined to get a, an email from him. But he approached me and he said, you know, I, he said that he really loved Viticulture and enjoyed Tuscany and kind of wanted to work together with me to make a new edition of it that would be both printed in German and in English. And so I spent the next month or so, this was this past spring, um, kind of secretly working with him to figure out what the, what we call the essential configuration of viticulture would be. That would be great for advanced players, but also still welcoming to new players. And so we came up with, with what it is now, which is basically most of the first tier expansions in Tuscany, the, the more basic expansions. They're now in the core game of viticulture. And we hope after we sell out of out of the actual game of Tus- Tuscany that we have now, we'll eventually come out with a lighter version of Tuscany that just has the extended board, the special workers, and the structures. But yeah, the Viticulture Essential Edition will come out to pre-order. People who have already pre-ordered it will come out in November and then to retailers in December. Between Two Cities will be released to retailers in November. We're currently filling back our rewards for that. Um, and we're also... Fortunately, three months ahead of schedule on rewarding, on, on delivering back rewards for their new treasure chest that we have. That's happening right now as well. And so we'll release those, the remaining copies of those to retailers in, um, in November. So, so Viticulture Essentials. So that would have things like the, the property modifications to the, to the board, not structures, but the, the property, mamas and the papas. The updated cards, like the advanced, the new visitors, that sort of thing. 
Yeah, it'll have all of the advanced and new visitors in there, except that we've kind of, we, for the advanced visitors, we removed the word advanced from them and just picked, we just used the advanced version. So like the advanced cultivator, there's no longer like an advanced cultivator and a cultivator in the game. There's just a cultivator and it's the, it's the previous one that said advanced on it. So we've kind sure, of slimmed sure. down them to the, the best visitor cards that are good to use at any time in the game. So you don't ever really get a bad draw of visitor cards. And we also included the Automa uh, solo variant deck of cards in the game. All right. Well, uh, thanks for coming and talking to us, Jamie. Yeah, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate it. All right. You've been listening to Strange Assembly, your tabletop gaming podcast. You can visit us on the web at www.strangeassembly.com. You can subscribe to the podcast there or on iTunes or Stitcher. If you subscribe through one of those services, we'd always appreciate if you left us a review or a rating. That helps other people find the show. You can check us out on social media. We're at Strange Assembly on Twitter and Facebook.com slash Strange Assembly. If you like a bit more of a personal touch, you can email me directly. I'm Chris at StrangeAssembly.com. But until then, for Jamie Stegmeyer, I'm Chris Stevenson. And this is Strange Assembly. Never stop gaming.